0: Well, good morning, Crossroads. Welcome. If you're new here, welcome also. Uh, we'd love to connect with you to get to know who you are. Uh, so, if you're new, walk up to anybody that has a name tag on. There's a connection center right around the corner there. Walk up to me afterwards. I'd love to get your name and hear your story. Uh, my wife and I, Jocelyn, have been here for about two and a half years, been part of this Crossroads family, and we have been so blessed to see uh, how a community lives out, uh, what it means to find our beauty and our identity in Christ. Uh, We know we're not perfect, but we know that He is, and and it's just been such a privilege to be here and and experience that and be a part of that. Uh, They gave the resident the last sermon in the series of Revelation, uh, so either they trust me or uh, they don't know that I'm long-winded. We're in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And this morning, before we... Uh, read the passage that we're going to be looking at, we need to remember uh, that the five months that we've been in this series, all the things that they've been teaching us, all the things we've been learning about this letter, they need to come to the forefront of our minds as we engage this text, primarily because when you read the book of Revelation, it feels like you're looking through a kaleidoscope and trying to run at the same time, right? It feels like you've been riding a bull and now they're telling you to recite the ABCs backwards and trying to, like, walk in a line. You're so disoriented as you walk through this book because there's so many colors and so many sounds and all these numbers and measurements and things you have to kind of try and keep track of. And when we engage this last vision of the book of Revelation, we have to remember that it is three different things. It is a letter written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. First century Christians, these seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey and in first century Rome were experiencing unimaginable persecutions, oppression, economic injustice. They couldn't shop at the same marketplaces. And the problem with the Roman Empire was not that they worshipped a particular god, but that they didn't worship all the gods. Christianity didn't leave room for the gods of Rome. And so the Christians at this time we known as nonconformists, as Dan Mike said last week, as, as terrorists. Because they were subverting the Roman Empire by believing in this one God. Now, it is a letter to these people, but it is also prophetic literature. It is also a prophecy. Dan Mike so eloquently, last week again, defined prophecy for us as speaking truth to power. It is the... Man or woman of God saying no in the face of empire, that this is not right, this is not how it should be, and standing up and speaking a prophetic message. It is also, lastly, apocalyptic literature. That's where the kaleidoscope idea comes in. Because apocalyptic literature has all these colors and all these sounds and all these things meant to overwhelm your senses on purpose. So if you felt that as we have gone through the book, good. That's the point. It's communicating a message in that overwhelming feeling. You don't even have time to write down what's happening as you're trying to understand it. It's just hitting you back and forth. That's what we get in this letter. And so as we get into these last two chapters of not only the book of Revelation, but the Bible, we need to keep those things in mind. There are people that this is written to. It is a prophecy saying no to empire And it is going to overwhelm you, and that's a good thing. And I debated on how much we were going to read today. Uh, Don't worry, we're not going to read both chapters, but we are going to read a lot of it, because I cannot do justice to this vision by cutting it off at any point where John is saying, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm hearing. There's no way to do it. So if you would stand as we are used to doing, if you are able, returning to Revelation 21, it's page 1004 in your blue Bibles. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at those gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then the angel who talked with me, who had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth, Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I didn't see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So if you're anything like me, You read that and were either excited and confused or just confused. Because there's a lot of things going on. There's a bunch of jewels that I didn't even know existed. There's trees and gold and rivers and there's all this stuff going on. Walls and measurements. I have no idea what they are. And there's so many things going on in this vision that I couldn't possibly do justice to the passage and teach you everything that's in it and work through all of it that's in it. So in an effort to spare both me and you of a four-hour sermon... We're just going to hit a couple of the themes that are in there, but if you want to talk more about it, I have been sitting in this passage for weeks, and it has been glorious. I would love to talk with you about it, but beware, I will nerd out about different things that are in here. The other thing I want to say is that this passage has a lot of connections to the Old Testament and the New Testament. John pulls at strings, he's weaving this tapestry of this vision, and he's kind of going right back to the beginning. And I'm going to be referencing a lot of those passages, but we're not going to be diving into much of any of them, we're not going to be able to read all of them. So when you hear those passages, write it down, look at it later, because it makes this passage so much more rich, so much more beautiful. So let's get right into it. When in the first eight verses, we see two different things. John sees something and he hears something, right? What does he see? Well, he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and he sees specifically the holy city of Jerusalem coming down, right? Now, we've just finished up chapter 20, where the judgment of the people who have aligned themselves with the dragon and the beast, their inheritance is this judgment of God. And now we get to chapter 21, and we get the inheritance of the faithful, If you remember, when we were in chapters 2 and 3, at the end of each section for each church, after he's talked about all the good things that they've done, the bad things, some more than others, it ends saying, to the one who is victorious, to the one who conquers, they will receive XYZ. Different inheritance for different churches. This is the fullness of the inheritance that we've been reading about over and over again. And John, with this first heaven, first earth, new heaven, new earth idea, this is the first string he starts tugging at because he goes all the way back to Genesis. And yes, if you've been around at Crossroads, you know we go to Genesis over almost every sermon. We're going to go there again a lot because that's the beginning of the story and we're at the end of the story, right? In Genesis 1 through 3, we hear about God's good creation, his very good creation. And then we hear about something not so good. We hear about the entrance of sin into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And this disobedience becomes toxic fumes that cover all of creation and fill our lungs as we gasp for the breath of life that we need in the Creator, but start to seek in created things. But God has a plan, and throughout the rest of the scriptures, we read of this plan that he has to restore that breath of life. To clear the fumes of sin so that no longer will creation be gasping, but it will be rejoicing. And we see that here, right? We see a new heavens and a new earth. This plan is starting to come to pass. And in Isaiah, that plan is previewed. Isaiah 65, 17, God mentions, says, the goal of what I'm doing right here and right now in Israel is going to be this new creation, We see this goal being played out in 2 Corinthians 5.17 and in Galatians 6.15. There are other places in the Bible that talk about new creation. Paul writes about it in his letters. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he calls us new creations. And one of the things that we're going to hear over and over again as we read this passage and look at this passage is that new creation is not just something for then and there. It's already started here and now in us. It's not to say that this isn't future, that God will not one day make everything right, but he has already started making things right here in this community of believers. And that's gospel good news to the seven churches that are reading this letter because they're under persecution, right? So they're under all this oppression. They have to stand Tall in the middle of it. They're supposed to be faithful. To know that new creation has started now and that they participate in that, that would make me stand tall. That would help me to hold on. One of the interesting things about the first verse there is that the sea is no more. Did you guys catch that as I was reading? Is that kind of weird to you, a little odd? God maybe doesn't like fishing as much as you thought he did? Well, if you read through the Bible with an eye for this theme, the sea actually plays a major role in the Bible as a symbol of chaos and evil. Right back in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep, the earth is formless and void, and with just two Hebrew words, God lights up the place. We jump to Job 38, where God answers Job out of the storm And one of the first images he goes for, Job, uh, I just want to know, when, when the sea was created, did you tell it to go only this far and no further? Did you control it? No, I did. God is a God of peace, and he reigns over chaos and evil. He brings it into peace. Or we go to Luke 8. Jesus cast out the demons from this demoniac and he sends it into a herd of pigs. And where does the herd of pigs go? Jump off a cliff into the lake, into the Sea of Galilee. In the Jewish mindset, the sea was the home of, of the abyss, it's, it's the evil place. And in God's good new creation, the sea is no more. God reigns in peace. And it's the first part of this good news. One of the other hard things that I want to tackle here is that so often we take this passage and we run with it to the point where we say that this creation doesn't matter. God's doing something new. This is all going to burn. What's the point? Just get souls to heaven. It's all that matters. And I used to think like that. Get people saved. That's the point, right? But in this vision, John is clearly communicating that it's not that this old creation goes completely out of existence and this new creation is all that there is, but rather that this new creation is the redemption of the old creation. And you know how I know that? Well, if you read a couple more verses, where does the holy city come from and where does it go? Out of heaven onto earth. It's not that the body of believers, God's people, go up to heaven. They don't escape this earth. God comes down and dwells with humanity here. So we've looked at what John sees, but what does he hear? If you look down at your Bibles, a loud voice comes from the throne. Do you see that? It says that God will dwell with humanity, and he will be their God. They will be his people. And this is a promise that has reverberated throughout Scripture. Again, John pulling at the string. We go all the way back to Exodus, where God's people are told to build this tabernacle, this tent where God will dwell. And every time God's presence leaves the tent, they are to pack it up and move out to wherever God's presence stops. But it's temporary. It's transitory. It moves. And so when they finally go into the promised land, in Jerusalem, in 1 Kings 6-9, through Solomon builds the first temple. Beautiful, magnificent temple that's destroyed in 586 B.C. So a simple second temple gets created, gets built and renovated over and over again. Beautiful. The stones are so large, it's, I don't even know how they built this thing. It gets destroyed in 70 A.D. And we read in John 1 that Jesus Christ, when he came down, when he became man, John 1, he uses a specific word in that gospel. And that same word is the same word here for dwell. And so in the same way that Jesus became man and came and dwelled with us, God will come and dwell here. We will be with him. He will be our God, and we will be his people. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 3 through 6 that now we're the temples of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, as Will was praying up here earlier, that, that he will be here with us. That is a promise that comes from the New Testament. That has not always been the case. But in this new creation, it's not just that he's here with us as we pray and engage. He will be here with us, we will see God's face. and We will see him in the fullness of the beauty of his face. But I'm getting ahead of myself. God's presence with creation means something extraordinary. Do you see what happens there? We use this verse a lot, but it, it comes as a result of God's presence there. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. Death will be no more. Because God is with his people. And this creation has been redeemed. It is no longer like this. That was one of the most impactful things that I've read this week. And it's not because I've heard it over and over again, though I had to work hard against that because I thought I understood it. But to see that God comes here and pain and crying is transformed, is redeemed. It's not like our memories are going to be wiped and we're going to forget everything that's happened here. Here's how I know that. If you look at the end of the gospel, when Jesus is resurrected, he actually has this resurrected body that, that we're going to have, and we see kind of a glimpse of what that's going to look like. And if you read those accounts in Luke and John, Jesus, when he shows up to the disciples, first of all, he can walk through walls, so that's pretty sweet. He also still gets to eat, so I don't know how that works. And then he has to convince the disciples that he's not a ghost, which would have been an awesome conversation over here. But at the end of those, that interaction, that encounter, Jesus looks at Thomas, who's doubting, and what does he say? Put your hands in my scars, put your hands in my side. See that I am real. The scars of Jesus aren't gone in his resurrected body. But they are glorified. They are redeemed. It's not like we're going to forget this life, but we will remember it in all the glory in the only way that God can know how. And I don't know how He's going to do it. It is one of the mysteries of this new creation. But we will see what God has been weaving this entire time in our lives. And this is the reward. Right? The one who conquers, the one who's victorious, we read, this is the inheritance of them. They will have God as their God, and they will be his people. But one of the hard things about the end of this passage is that most of our translations um, will, will say that, it's, that they will be his children. Right? Not a bad translation, good idea, it's what we got, it's what it means. But the word there, that's its children, is actually the word for son, singular. It connects all the way back to a prophecy by Nathan to David that from David's line will come this conquering king. And God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. But more than that, the son concept in this culture, this is not uh, an attempt to be sexist. It is an attempt to understand culture. This is where the inheritance went. Sons got the inheritance. And in the new creation of God, both men and women are considered sons who receive the fullness of God's inheritance. And they are his children receive all of this. But then we end this section of the passage with a a troubling list, right? This really bad list is kind of unique because you look at it and you're kind of confused. He starts with cowards. And then goes to unbelievers and he ends on liars. Not the most dramatic start and end to a list, right? Almost all the things we consider worse are right in the middle. But to a, a, the seven churches, a people who are oppressed and persecuted, to warn them of being cowards, of demonstrating their disbelief, of lying about their faith by as soon as push comes to shove, cutting and running, that's the list of the really bad stuff. And in fact, the way the list is constructed, we get these cowards at the beginning, these liars at the end, and when they act like this, you're aligning yourself with the dragon. You're aligning yourself with the beast. And you, be, you become a part of these people who are considered murderers, idolaters, sexually immoral. Not to say that those things aren't bad. But he's communicating to these churches. He's telling them, be faithful. Faithlessness faithlessness will be judged. Are you faithful where you're at right now? Are you faithful in your job, school, your friends? Is it really hard to speak up when a conversation's kind of going sideways? Is it really hard to try to enter a conversation and talk about what you really believe, but you're just trying to kind of stay under the radar? I find it really hard sometimes. But faithlessness is not what's rewarded. And John has set up this vision in the first eight verses and now transitions in these next, you know, section of 9 through 27. And he transitions by referring back to an angel that happens in, John 7, er, in Revelation 17. It's the same angel that showed him Babylon. 17.1, you get Babylon the city. And then now in 21.9, we get the city of God. And there's a clear contrast here. Are you going to be with the city of man? We're at the city of God. And John gets to see this city, and he describes it in one of the most beautiful ways. All these numbers, these architectural features. Remember, we talked about apocalyptic literature. These are, these are some of the symbolic terms we see in here, right? So first, let's start. We see a city where John is kind of being blinded by God's glory. And it's a city with a wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels at those gates. And the gates of the twelve tribes of Israel inscribed on them. What in the world is going on here? Well, we get this wall with this safety and security that these people are not experiencing now being symbolized in these walls. We get these gates that show, hey, it is a city that is wide open. The city of Jerusalem right now, four gates. The city of Jerusalem then, twelve. And the twelve tribes of Israel, this is a reference to the story all the way back in the Old Testament, way back when, where Israel was called to be this people of God who served as priests to the nations. They were not supposed to be this completely separate, we don't talk to anybody, everybody else is against us, they are our enemies, and we are God's faithful. That's not what God's plan was. God's plan was that this would be a holy people, separate but inviting of the nations to come to see who God actually is. But they failed miserably. And the prophets tell us time and time again that not only did they fail to invite the nations in in the right way, they invited them in in the wrong way. And they went after those gods. They were not the holy ones that pointed them to Yahweh. And so we get the city with 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on the gates, but then we get these foundations where the 12 apostles' names are on there. And these 12 gates, these 12 tribes, are wide open. And the foundation has been built on the early church and what Jesus started. Do you see God reversing the problem that Israel had in the Old Testament? They closed their gates to the nations, but in God's new city, they are wide open. You get near the end of this chapter, the gates are never shut. And you have this connection between God's people in the Old and God's people in the New Testament that have become this one people of God. And the radiance of the city, it brings the nations in. Do you see that there? It attracts the nations. The kings of the earth bring their splendor into the city, and no longer is the people of God Labeled by nationalistic barriers. It is this beautiful mosaic of what God intended from the very beginning. There will be no more racism. There will be no more prejudice or discrimination. No longer will it be all these country lines that are divided. No, they will be the one people of God and he will be their God and they will be his people. You see them coming into the city. But this city gets described with all these beautiful gemstones. I tried really hard not to butcher any of those names as I was reading them. And allow me to nerd out for a little bit because some of the things in here are just absolutely amazing. And I couldn't cut them from telling you about them. If you look at the measurements of the city, do you see that? It says 12,000 stadia, right? Right? Most of your Bibles, if not all of them, will have a footnote there that converts that for you. That's 1,400 miles. Long, wide, and tall. That means that that city is bigger than the Western United States. In fact, it's bigger than the known Roman world at that time. God's city is bigger than Babylon's country, Babylon's empire. And not only that, It's a specific shape. What has the same length, width, and height? Geometry lesson. Cube, right? The only other cube in the entire Bible is a place called the Holy of Holies. And it's a special place that the high priest of Israel would go in once a year to make sacrifices for the sins of the nations. And when he went in there, he had to have a sensor full of incense that created this really thick smoke that filled the room so that he didn't accidentally see God's face and die. He had bells at the bottom of his robe so that when he was sacrificing, he continued to make noise so that they know if there's no more noise, someone's dead. But in the city of God, in this cube, we are all in there. We are a holy people that get to experience God face to face. No longer do we need the thick smoke of incense, the animal hides of Genesis 3. We don't need anything to hide us from God because he will be our God and we will be his people. But this inheritance, this promise, is only for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who have identified themselves with the Lamb, have stood faithful with the lamb conquered by the love of the lamb and the city is not just described by what's there the gemstones and all these things that are going on and i can't get into what all the gemstones kind of hint at but it's also described by what is not there we've already had some things that are not there death is not there crying pain not there any longer There's also, we keep going to the end of this section of 10 through 27, we also see there is no temple. There is no special place to meet with God anymore because the entire place is a special place to meet with God. There is no need for a sun or a moon because God and the Lamb light the place up. There will be no more darkness. The dark night of injustice will be no more, and the shining bright light of the justice of the day will be forever. In the new city of God, there is no temple, there is no night, and the light of God is always on. We get to the beginning of chapter twenty-two, and we see something specific in the city. We've we've seen the nation streaming in through the twelve gates. We see that there's no temple. We see that there's God just light everywhere, bouncing off the gold, bouncing off the the gemstones, radiant city. But then we watch as the nations walk into this city, and they're waiting in a river filled with the water of life. And this river is so large that the tree of life it can't just be in one place. It's on both sides of the bank. It's, these things are so big in this image. And if you've looked through your scriptures, the tree of life, all the way back in Genesis again, it's what's guarded when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Angels are guarding the way to the tree of life, access to this life that God has provided. But in the new creation of God, angels that are at all the gates, having the nation stream in, right up to this tree and that is good news to people in persecution and oppression to hold on to this to know this when everything is going crazy and they have no idea what God is doing the brothers and sisters being killed losing limbs this is gospel good news Do you see the leaves of the tree? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The curse will be no more. Everything will be made right. Everything that we know is wrong now will be right then. Do you feel that in you? Does that burn in your heart for God to make everything right, that this is not how things are supposed to be? Does that hope fill you? That's what John is communicating to these churches in the first century. Be filled with this hope. It's the only thing that you're going to be able to stand with. God is on his throne. And that kind of hope, that hope for a day where parents do not have to worry about miscarriages or stillbirths, where families that have been devastated by the explosive effects of war and having to flee their country don't have to worry about that anymore, where missions trips to dig wells will not happen anymore because the well never runs dry, because the river of the water of life fills the city of God. Do you feel that hope? If you feel that, then that is what we're supposed to live with, day in and day out. This place is not right. God will make all things right, but he has started a new creation in me right now, in this community right now. And this vision isn't a vision for the end. It's a vision for those who live in the now to hope to the end, Where the here and now will someday be the then and there. But while we're here and now, we live into this new creation. We align ourselves with God. And we live like he wants us to live. This is the encouragement of 21 and 22. And as the band comes up, and we sing and we reflect upon what God is going to do, what he's already doing In us right now, I pray that you would remember that thirst that you once had. You've been thirsty before. I know that because if you're here, then you've seen, tasted what the water of life actually does for people. And if you know that thirst, you should be able to recognize that thirst in other people. You should be able to run to them and say, I know you're thirsty, I've been there before. I have looked for my significance, my security, in things other than God. But I know where water is. May that be your reflection as we sing. This week, my prayer for you, for us, is that the new creation would burn so bright in our hearts that we are able to be like the spirit and the bride in 2217 when they burst with the word come. That the one who is thirsty, come. The one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life, come. May your heart, may your life Say that word, and I don't know what that will look like in your job, with your friends, but it will look like something. Receive the blessing of the final words of the word of God. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your week. If you want to pray with us, there's a prayer room upstairs. We'd love to pray with you guys.